Our gospel lesson this morning is found in the first chapter of John. We are reading verses 19 through 34 this morning, if you'll follow along with me. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. We give thanks for your word this morning, Father, and we ask that as we prepare for our celebrations of Christmas, that you will speak, Lord, and that you'll illumine our hearts and our minds and guide us into all truth by your great power. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1987, David Shribman, he was at the start of his journalistic career he was assigned to write a piece for the Wall Street Journal. His assignment was simple. Profile 10 rising stars in the American political scene. And these people that he profiled were to be the people who would dominate 21st century American politics. So Shribman researched, he developed his criteria for selection and then he published his article. Ironically, the names on the list in that article published in the Wall Street Journal, you wouldn't recognize any of them. <laughs> One is a county commissioner today somewhere in Indiana. One lost his election in Congress, and he now travels the country speaking about depression. One hoped to serve on the Federal Reserve Board, but gave up on that, and he's currently pursuing Japanese flower arranging. Two went to jail, and one went to jail twice. The list is completely just full of unnotable people who did not dominate the American political scene like they were supposed to. Shribman actually laughs about it. He published an article just a few days ago, 31 years later, almost joking, 
he got it so wrong. How did he miss it? How did all 10 of the people, his article was more of a curse than a blessing and a prophecy. And what it highlights for us is just how badly we can misjudge things. That what we think and what we, what we believe will become great, that what we think is going to turn into something, we can completely misevaluate it. We get it wrong. And that doesn't just apply to us in the American political scene, but it also applies back into the world of the first century. Because you see, the religious establishment of Israel, they also had their criteria, and they evaluated people, and they decided whether they would then listen to them or not. And John the Baptist didn't make the list. He wasn't impressive. He didn't belong. And so they come to him and they ask a question and they say, who are you? And you must hear that question in that way because it was not an inquiry. It was an accusation. Who are you to be out here baptizing? What gives you that kind of authority? This is what the religious establishment in Israel comes out to make plain that John was an imposter and he was doing something he shouldn't be doing. He was not impressive to the powers that be and he certainly didn't please them. But John's answer to that question is vitally important for us because John says that he's a witness. A voice crying out in the wilderness as the prophet Isaiah had said in, verse, in chapter 40 of his prophecy. And on this fourth Sunday in Advent, amidst all the chaos of Christmas that's impending upon you, one of the most important things for us to do is to simply stop, to pause for a brief second, and to listen to this voice, to consider this witness that was offered over 2,000 years ago but continues to echo through the pages of sacred scripture to us and for us to listen to what this witness says. So what do we need to see and hear from the witness of John today? Three brief things this morning. First, John puts the establishment on notice. You'll notice that he cries out in accord with Isaiah 40 to make straight the way of the Lord. He's calling people to repentance, and then he has a sign attached to that repentance, which was baptism. And so John was out on the other side of the Jordan. He had gone outside of Israel and he is baptizing the people who come as they repent and turn and prepare the way for the Lord to come to Israel. Now it's interesting because the sign of baptism was known in first century Israel. In fact, it was used only for one select class of people and that was for Gentile converts. And so when a Gentile would convert to Judaism, they would be baptized and they became what were called proselytes. But John, you note that he is baptizing Israelites. That are those people who have been circumcised and brought into the covenant community. And John is saying, no, you need to be baptized. You need to turn. And so suddenly the religious establishment sends a party out to investigate because John was doing something very wrong. This wasn't kosher at all. 
asking for Israelites to convert to Judaism, calling them to turn away from sin. They were already the people of God according to the religious establishment. But John was saying, no, there's something sick and there's something deeply wrong in Israel, that there's something amiss. And he was calling the entire establishment to repentance, to turn freshly to God, to seek out grace and mercy, to turn away from wrong. But you see, this is the thing about religious establishments, whether it's first century Judaism or the church today, that we can quickly grow entitled, we can quickly become complacent, and we can quickly become self-satisfied. And the Jews of John's day, as Jesus arrives on the scene, were clearly there. They found their glory in the fact that God had singled them out to be his people. And they were proud of that. And they were satisfied in that, that they were part of the children of Abraham. And this is where they found their confidence. And the church today can find its confidence in any number of things where God doesn't ask us to place it. And so John comes and he calls the church to repentance. And during the season of Advent and Christmas, as we focus upon the birth of Jesus, and as we anticipate celebrating that tomorrow, it's appropriate for us to just continually consider that, of being called to make straight the way of the Lord to hear the simple call to confess our sins, to acknowledge what's not right, and particularly to turn from entitlement, to turn from pride, to turn from boasting, to every wrong source of place that we put our confidence. This was the first thing that we see about John's ministry, and that voice continues to ring today. Second thing is that John points away from himself. This is one of the things we see as John the Baptist ministers, is he is not seeking to increase himself, but rather he is seeking to decrease, and he points and reflects everything he can to Jesus Christ. Now, there's a comical interaction that takes place in the passage as the, the religious establishment sends the party to investigate and they ask him the question, who are you, in verse 20? And he then answers, I am not the Christ. So then they ask the question, well, are you Elijah? And his answer is, I am not. And then they say, are you the prophet? And he gets more terse, and he just says, no. I'm not any of those. And then you find this juxtaposed against three affirmations. He makes these three denials and then will come up with three affirmations. In verse 23, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And so he's saying that he is a witness sent from God. And then he says that I am the baptizer who comes to baptize with water in verse 26. And then in verse 27, he says, I am not worthy to untie the throng on his sandal. This is who John identifies himself as. He identifies himself who comes to witness who's not worthy to do so. And so he's seeking to point away from himself. And what is so important for the church as we consider our own witness is that we know what we are not and we know exactly who we are. 
There's so much to appreciate about John the Baptist and the role that he plays and for us to learn from it. That John points us to Christ and this is exactly what we are to continue to do today in our own witness. Now there's lots of ways for the church to get this wrong. Several years ago, I sat down with one of my mentors and he said, Chuck, now I want to remind you never to get too big of a head. Thank you. Uh, can you please elaborate? And he then turned and he said, well, you know, it happens that a minister's ego often gets in his way and you don't want that to ever happen to you. And so I asked a few further questions about how he had seen that affect ministries and churches. And then he said something surprising though. He said, but I want you to note something. You do have a role in this beyond just putting guardrails around your own ego. He said, you also have to disciple your congregation. He said, because it takes two to tango on this. For a minister to become self-important and for a minister to overshadow a congregation, it means that the congregation was also complicit in it. And that it takes two to cooperate in this type of thing where the minister loses his role and becomes self-important and is no longer a witness to Jesus but begins to draw attention into himself. And this is one thing that plagues the church and has always plagued it through time and history and that we have to be very careful about. And we see from John the Baptist that he was a witness and he was pointing away and he was saying that he wanted to de decrease that Christ would increase. He denies everything that he is not and he understands his role clearly. And we all want to be extremely careful about that, that the church in its witness always reflects, that it is always pointing towards, it's a witness to Jesus Christ. Now, a second thing that often goes on in church life, it just comes down to our personal testimonies. A few days ago, I was in a conversation with the Christians. The first time I'd met him, and we were in a large room where there were many people talking, and I got stuck in the corner where he was then sharing with me his personal testimony. He was a delightful man, and then it went on for 20 or 25 minutes, and it's hard. I, I normally find myself able to get a word in edgewise, and there was nothing like that happening during this story. A fascinating testimony ranging throughout his life. And the focus of the testimony, though, was about him. It was strange. As the testimony unfolded, it was all about certain events and what he had done. And then some changes that had been made in his life. And then well, there's one story about how he had been really sick and was healed. And then the stories went on about his devotional times and how God met him there and about his prayer life and how great that prayer life was. And then at the very end, he stapled on, isn't God really good? And I was able to affirm that, yes, and I was happy to hear the reports of the good things that God had done in his life. But do you know the strange thing across the 20 minutes? Is there was no reference to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And friends, this happens to us very easy. I don't just pick on this one fellow Christian. Because we all have to be very careful that in our autobiography, in the ways that God has impacted us and changed us, that that does not then displace Jesus and pointing to him and the word of the gospel that is the power of salvation itself. 
Your testimony is a witness to that salvation, but it's not the power of salvation. The power is the word of God. It is testifying to Jesus who dies and rises again, who cancels out the sins of the world, who makes us right with God, who gives us the hope of the world to come. And so we must be very careful when it comes to this idea of what it means to be witness. Yes, we can speak of our biographies and what God has done, but we never want that to subsume and overwhelm the witness of the gospel. Now, another way that this happens in church life is even perhaps more subtle. It's very easy for churches to become focused upon what they do, especially when churches have big projects and missions and important things that they want to accomplish. We can have commands from God like the Great Commission. We can have projects in which we need to expand facilities like a capital campaign. We can have strategic plans in which we want to plant churches. We can have all kinds of things in front of us that are good. We can have an emphasis upon ministering to the poor and being filled with doing good deeds for other people. And very subtly in the church's life, this is what becomes emphasized from the front. This is what becomes talked about. This is what becomes the major raison that the church lives by. And this is what we can't do because we exist to be a witness to Jesus Christ. That all the other things are important, but they follow this thing of first importance, which is Jesus Christ up from the dead to cancel out sins. And so we want to always point away from ourselves, keeping Jesus at the very center having all of our reasoning and all of our thinking and all of our planning and all of our praying and all of our missions and all of our building and all the things that we do, that we don't push Jesus out to the side. This is the second thing that we learn from John the Baptist. Now the third is that John announces the climax of God's plan. As you hear John cry out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. It's important to consider the the passage that John is reflecting on as he understands his own personal call from God. If you have a Bible available, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. A famous chapter of the Bible, no doubt. It's been made famous in the church's hymnody. And it begins like this in verse one. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is the prophet writing about a future day when God was going to bring Israel back from exile. That was the original setting of this. And so then in verse three, A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Literally, prepare the way for Israel to return from exile back to the promised land, is what's being said. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. In other words, the roadways are gonna become straight for them as they come back into Jerusalem. And then in verse five, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Interesting, what's being said is that when the people return from exile, 
God was going to re-inhabit the temple. His glory, the Shekinah, was going to come back into the temple and dwell amongst the people of God. This was the prophecy of Isaiah. John then obviously picks this up and he says that he is that voice. This is why he was out beyond the Jordan. And he's calling the people to repentance, that this was an analogy and a metaphor about the roads being made straight and that they were to straighten out their lives and turn once again to God for fresh repentance and time of renewal and experience of God's grace. And then he is making a very bold claim about the one who he identifies as the Son of God. Because when we read verse five, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. He's not referring to the Shekinah returning to the temple. Rather, he's referring to the person of Jesus. You see, the Jews in the first century were expecting a couple of different things to happen. They were expecting God to return to the temple. They were expecting God to raise up a ruler from the, from the sons of David, from the line of David. They were expecting the spirit to return and renew Israel. And you find all of that expectation then combined very strangely in John chapter one, in one person. The glory of God manifested in the son of David and the spirit of God descending upon him. And this is why many of Jesus' contemporaries couldn't understand him. They felt like the promises of God were not being fulfilled. They found Jesus underwhelming. But John is explaining that this is the glory of God manifest in front of you. And then he explains that glory in a very intriguing way as well. You'll note in verse 29 what John says. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We touched on this briefly last week, that the glory of God is particularly a conversation that the Gospel of John picks up. And so in the first part of the Gospel of John from chapter one to chapter 11, commentators who study this, this Gospel oftentimes explain that this is called the book of signs that we have six major signs. They are miracles, healings that take place in the ministry of Jesus. And this is what structures these first 11 verses, the signs of Jesus. And then we find the whole back half of the gospel from chapter 12 to chapter 21. And there's a word that continuously appears in these chapters in its glory. And we find the word glory being emphasized over and over where signs had been emphasized in the first 11. Now we have glory and so commentators call this the book of glory. But of course, those chapters from chapter 12 to chapter 21, Jesus says the hour has arrived for the son of man to be glorified. And he is speaking of his death. And so the glory of God that's manifest here John calls him the Lamb of God. Of course, referring to the fact that he would be the sacrifice who would be sufficient for the sins of the whole world, that his life would be laid down, 
that he would be the one who would make atonement to reconcile those who were far off, to bring all who had participated in humanity's rebellion, which is every one of the human race, that they might be reconciled to God. And so the whole climax of the plan of God to dwell amongst human beings and to reconcile human beings to himself, the witness is saying this is all unfolding, that the good shepherd among us is also the slaughtered lamb, the servant of the Lord is also the victim, and that this manifests the glory of God. And so in the midst of all your Christmas, Hear the witness of John the Baptist, the strange prophet on the other side of the Jordan who pointed and reflected Jesus Christ, who drew everyone's attention there, who gave all of his effort to do that, that the announcement of the climax of God's plan would be clear for all the world to know exactly what this God who made all things was now doing inside of his creation to reconcile it to himself. And so make that the focus and your meditation for all the things that God's doing this Christmas season. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give thanks that you have sent witnesses into the world. They would point us to Jesus Christ and we're grateful for the ministry of John the Baptist and the ways which he denied the roles that many would want to assign to him, and he understood his role to point to you. And Lord, we ask that we would learn from that, and you would drive that deep into our hearts and to our minds, that we would follow after Jesus Christ. And Lord, in the midst of the busy season of Christmas, we ask that the message of the gospel would be clear to us and that we would be filled with thanksgiving and joy knowing all that you have done in sending the Lamb of God into the world for us. And may we be comforted and may we be overjoyed as we turn afresh to you during this time. We're taught by your holy word that we're to make prayers and supplications and to give thanks for all people. In your mercy this morning, we ask that you would receive our prayers.